Welcome to Beyond Bite Wings, the business side of dentistry, brought to you by Edwards & Associates PC. Join us as we discuss how to build your dental practice, optimize your income, and plan for your future. This podcast is distributed with the understanding that Edwards & Associates PC is not rendering legal, accounting, or professional advice. Listeners should consult with their business advisors before acting on any of the information that is shared. At Edwards & Associates PC, our business is the business of dentistry. For help or more information, visit our website at enassociates.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Bite Wings. Today we have a special episode for you guys and we're going to call it Managing Your Hygiene Department. And with us today, aside from the usual people that you guys listen to, myself, Ash Fezula, Robert Edwards, we have Karen Davis. Hello, Karen. Hey, it's so good to join Beyond the Bite Wings. I'm glad to be part of this family. Yeah, we're glad to have you here too. Thank you. you Oh, you're welcome. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Sure. I... (laughs) I am a practicing dental hygienist for longer than most of your listeners have been alive. That's a good place to start. (laughs) It's really true. Uh, I took a break during the pandemic. I have a husband who's super high risk. So I took a break and wasn't practicing, but I'm about to go back to practicing because I'm fully vaccinated. Can't wait to get back in the chair and see my patients and be part of that family. I really missed it. And I've been in the same practice for <laughs> 35 years. That sounds crazy, too. But I, I really have the best of both worlds. I get to practice clinically, and I get to share my passions with audiences internationally as a speaker. So I am very blessed. Yeah, you've actually spoken in uh, Australia, I believe, haven't you? I have, yes. I really enjoyed that trip. That was a fun experience, and we got to pet a lot of kangaroos and Koala bears. How about that? That's a little bit unique. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. We're happy to have you here today, Karen. And, uh, you know, some of the things that led me to invite you on the show is that when I'm looking at our clients' financial statements and I constantly see their hygiene departments are producing less than I know they should be. And by that, I mean, I think the industry's sort of goal is a third of total office production should be hygiene and our yeah. clients a lot of our clients and i'm guessing i don't know if it's 90 percent, but it's got to be pretty close to 85 or 90 percent of our clients are probably below 25 percent. and i looked at one yesterday that bought a practice in october and he's at 20 percent on a million dollar practice wow. so oh wow so tell That's us a shame yeah so tell us some things that they can do to address that and and get that production up and then i've got some other questions i want to filter in here as the time permits yeah well thank you for inviting me to share what i know on this topic and i have been a trainer with the jp institute years past and just lots and lots hundreds maybe thousands of dental practices across North America. And I'm going to tell you, Robert, what I saw 15 years ago when I was training in offices is the exact same problem that faces us in 2021. The reason these practices would be so underproducing the capacity and the capability in the hygiene department is because they are in the middle of practicing bloody profies. They're just 
shooting out bloody prophies one right after another, one right after another. There is no way you can be producing that low of a percentage in a practice if you really are diagnosing and treating the amount of periodontal disease that is present. I, you know, I do a lot of things, but one of the things I actually love to do as a nerd (laughs) is read journals. I read lots of articles and during COVID, one really caught my attention. It was published by the Journal of Public Health and Emergency. I would not typically read something from that journal, but the title caught my attention and it was about the prevalence of periodontal disease worldwide. And it has increased about 30%, actually even higher than that, over the last three decades worldwide. And we're no different in the United States. You know, 65 and older individuals, 70% of that population base has periodontal disease. People younger than that, it's close to 50%. So the stats tell us we have a raging problem in our health that is not adequately being addressed. And when a practice really formulates a game plan on how to screen patients, diagnose, appropriately treat periodontal disease, there's there's two huge factors that happen. Number one, patients get a lot healthier. And number two, dental hygiene departments get a lot healthier. Well, and what happens when you have a hygienist that I've, I've heard this from hygienists before, they feel like if they're pressured or if the doctor suggests to them to, to treat, treat more perio or create more perio treatment, they feel uh-huh. like it's being overly aggressive and they don't want to do it. Well, you know, th- that's a multifactorial concern. <laughs> Let's just say that there is a, a really small percentage of scenarios where the doctor is pressuring a dental hygienist and she has the market on healthy patients and truly none of her patients have gingivitis or periodontitis or peri-implant disease, okay? okay? That would be rare, but it might happen on a rare occasion. And so she might, or he might have a legitimate concern. But I honestly think just because I've been in offices and trained and because I was trained to learn how to look for early stages of disease, I really think in most cases, Robert, the clinician has not yet mastered an effective technique on how to diagnose and detect the earliest stages of periodontal disease. And they're not doing it 100% consistently on all of their patients. Because if you are, it's there. (laughs) It is absolutely there. And all of our stats published tell us that it's there. Well, if you got 70% of patients age 65 or older that that have some perio, then what percentage is it for those below age 65? Any idea on that? Yeah, after about age 30, it it's almost at 50%. So before age 30, I don't know that I have accurate stats on that, but after about age 30, 35, in the population in America today, it's 47.98% of the population has periodontitis, periodontal disease. So okay. we have a big problem. So you can't assume that it's not there. What you have to assume is that we just haven't figured out the best way to identify it. And maybe as a practice, we really haven't prioritized that. It's hard to be on an island in the hygiene department as a dental hygienist. If you're the only one that's discussing periodontal disease, identifying periodontal disease, treatment planning for periodontal disease, and nobody else in the practice is on top of this, 
you really do begin to feel defeated because you're going to get pushback from patients. Keep in mind, this is a disease that has no symptoms. So the patients don't come in saying, hey, would you treat my disease in the earliest possible stages? They come in thinking, just going to get my teeth clean. Everything's great. Nope, not having any problems. And then as the dental hygienist, if he or she is doing a thorough assessment and discovers disease, then they have the job of informing the patient and creating that value. So you really need a whole team effort to make sure that everybody understands the value and the importance of early diagnosis. And I guess also a lot of patient education to let them know that even though they don't have any pain, they still have some disease there in their mouth that needs to be taken care of. Yeah, spot on. Absolutely right. Yeah, that the first place you have to educate is the patient itself that comes in unsuspecting, just want to get their you know, barnacles off their teeth and Starbucks stain off their teeth and going about their happy way. And uh uh-oh, now suddenly they've been informed that they have gingivitis or peri-implant disease or periodontitis. Yeah. A lot of education has to go into that. So that's one of the other components to this, Robert, uh, a practice that really wants to embrace this and maximize the, the skills and the outcomes that are possible for dental hygiene care, you you really need the whole team to be educated on this and to be on board. Because what happens with that patient if they leave the dental hygiene visit and they go up to the administrator up front and they say, Cindy, what is all this about periodontal treatment? I don't think I need that. Do you? Or what if they come in with a crown that comes off and they say to the clinical assistant, so Nancy, Karen told me last time I needed this periodontal therapy, but I've never had that before. And I've been coming here forever. I don't think I need that. Do you? (laughs) Everybody on the team needs to be a part of that commitment to diagnose and treat disease early. And these are probably all things you've heard from patients, aren't they? (laughs) I've heard everything, Robert. Yes. Well, let's switch switch gears a little bit here. And, uh, you know, we work here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We have a lot of startup practices. And one big question I get a lot of times is, how do they know when it's time to bring in a hygienist? Is there any formula they can use to calculate how many hygiene days they should have in their practice? Oh, you know, there probably is. And I'm not going to be your best formula person at this point, because I'm, I'm kind of out of touch with the in-office training. I just haven't done it in about 15 years. And, you know, other things occupy my brain these days. <laughs> but I'm, I, I will just say this. For a practice to really maximize a dental hygienist, I really believe in this philosophy. Are you ready for this? Ready. <laughs> and they will come. <laughs> uh, okay. Build it and they will come. You have to have a dental hygienist on board to be able to fill that person's schedule. And once you've got someone on board, you can utilize his or her skills to help reach out to those patients that are part of your patient base and introduce themselves even over the telephone and say how excited they are that they're going to get to meet them the next time the patient comes in for their preventive care. And it won't take long if you employ a hygienist to start just a couple of days a week if you're at ground zero. But bring them on board and then give them that opportunity to be on the phone to help fill their schedule until they're so busy they don't have time to be on the phone. And that is the ultimate goal. <laughs> so so basically what you're saying is hire a hygienist before you really need one because you're going to need Definitely. them once you hire them. Definitely. Okay. I've seen that 
so many times play out that if you don't have adequate hygiene, you won't have adequate patients to fill them. You won't. And the opposite is true. If you have a hygienist there and, you ha- and you're maximizing them and utilizing them to help reach out to patients and get them scheduled with the hygienist for their next visit, well, that schedule begins to fill up very quickly. And, and this verbal skill on that, let's say the patient is used to seeing the dentist and the dental hygienist is new in the practice. So if I were going to call a patient that I had not met yet, I would say, Robert, Dr. McDougal asked me to call you and introduce myself. I'm Karen. I am Dr. McDougal's hygienist. I am extremely excited to be a part of this practice because, as you know, this is the best practice to be in in the Dallas area. And I wanted to let you know that your next visit, I'm going to get to meet you in person and see you. And I just wanted to introduce myself before you come in. I think those are great verbal skills. I hope everybody wrote that down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just, you get the idea. You don't want that first opportunity to explain your presence being with the patient in the chair. If you've got time on your schedule and you don't have people in the chair right now, a great use of your time is to reach out to those patients and introduce yourself. You know, I don't disagree with that, but let me ask you this, playing the devil's advocate, are are hygienists going to be agreeable to getting on the phone and calling patients? Is there any resistance to that? Well, if there is, I can't imagine why there would be. I'm I'm describing a scenario where I'm the new hygienist and my schedule is not full. So what else am I going to be doing that's more important than filling my schedule? Nothing. <laughs> yeah, nothing. Right. <laughs> now, I will say in, in defense of dental hygienists that are treating patients, I can't do two things. So I cannot be on the phone and, and treat patients at the same time. So when my schedule gets full enough that I'm treating patients, somebody else needs to be on the phone. Well, and who is that normally? Is that your just your front desk person? Yeah, typically it's going to be an administrator up front. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, when I have open time in my schedule, let's say my schedule falls apart. I've got two hours open this afternoon. What is one of the best things I can do with my open time? Be on the phone connecting with patients that are past due that I have a connection with. They are more inclined to come back in and get on track when the hygienist calls them than when the administrator calls them. Because you've been in their mouth. You know their health. You know them. And I know from experience that if a hygienist doesn't have a patient for a couple of hours, they may actually just go home for those hours and then come back when the patient's scheduled. Well, and that totally depends upon the practice. If you're being paid an hourly rate and the doctor does not want you on the payroll doing other things, that may be your best option. But for I really think just to be forward thinking and maximize the hygienist that's there with an extra hour, hour and a half, whatever you've got, and put them on the phones. Just say, go to your administrator and say, who's past due? Who has fallen through the cracks? I want to reach out to them. No, that's great advice. I really uh, appreciate that for the listeners. And, And when does a practice actually need a hygiene coordinator that can help with recall and scheduling? Yeah, again, I'm not your formula person, Robert. (laughs) (laughs) I do other things, right? But you know what? I I really think that that's a valuable question that you you need to kind of answer similarly to the dental hygienist response. You can't have one single solitary person up in the front doing everything and, and still serving the patients the way they need to, need to be served in terms of timeliness of returning calls and answering questions and getting them scheduled and, and making financial arrangements and filing their insurance. So I think that 
my best advice would be to keep a pulse on that one person that's up front or two people who however many you have and check in with them regularly. If you are the business owner of the practice, check in with them regularly. They will be the first ones to let you know when more help is needed because they are going to be feeling it. They're going to be spilling over. There's They're juggling too many things. Patients are falling through the cracks. So I think as a practice owner, I would be checking in with my front team administrator or administrators that are already present to identify when we need to bring someone else in. Well, and, and speaking about bringing someone else in, let me ask you on the on the clinical side, how far out should the hygiene department be booked before you decide to add another hygienist or another hygiene day? You know, that I've always thought that is a tricky question that I've never really wanted to put parameters around. And and here is why. There's some psychology to this, Robert. So there is a point in which you do need to bring in additional day or half day of a hygienist on your schedule to start with. But the better problem is that the patient hears on the phone when they try to cancel their appointment, oh, Cindy, is there any way you could rearrange your schedule? Karen is booked solid. In fact, all of our hygienists are booked solid for several months. Now, I'm happy to put you on the priority list, but I know Karen, she's not going to want you to be off schedule. (laughs) Y'all have a good thing going here. So is there any way you could rearrange and keep your appointment with her next Monday? Let's just explore that first. They need to hear that the schedule is always full. Okay. Always full. And Robert, even if it's not always full, they need to hear the schedule is always full. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because the psychology is this. If a patient thinks it's just a cleaning and I can just as easily get back in two weeks from now than I can today, two weeks is going to be more convenient than today. And so your schedule starts falling apart at the last minute. And this just happens routinely. And so administrators are left with a giant job of trying to recreate a schedule at the last minute. So you don't want to be in that scenario. So even if your schedule is, let's say a patient's on the phone and they're trying to cancel for two days from now, and two days from now you have five openings and the next day you have three openings, you don't immediately offer them that next opening. (laughs) You say exactly what I just said. Can you rearrange your schedule? Is there any way you can keep this appointment? Because I don't have anything. And the way I say it is I don't have anything to offer you because I'm not offering you that next available. (laughs) I'm going to try and retrain my patients. I don't have anything to offer you and Karen's schedule for a couple of months. And I know she's not going to want you to wait that long. So you just use some psychology of always operating out of a full schedule. So to go back to your question, if you really are booking out six months, and there really aren't openings to slide people into, you need to open up some additional hygiene time. But I wouldn't just have that be one six-month scenario. If you see six months, you're booked solid, another six months, you're booked solid, another, you know, you need to month by month, look out and see you really aren't having very many openings because what you don't want, you do want to pre-block your schedule for new patients and periodontal patients, but what you really don't want is that you cannot get people back in within a reasonable amount of time because you are so completely overbooked, I'd say at that point. Yeah. So there's just a little bit of psychology to it. And I would rather err on always being too full than not full enough. But my patients are always going to hear that we're really full. (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and then like you said, I think you still, even though you're 
quote, full, you still have to leave some open time for new patients, right? You do. Absolutely. You need to pre-block for those new patients and you need to pre-block for patients that have been diagnosed with active disease and need to get right back in to get started on therapeutic treatment. And you talk about six months and you keep mentioning six months and that's the normal recall time, but people with periodontal disease come more often than that, right? They do. Absolutely. Yeah. Those patients typically are going to be seen in a three to four month interval. Okay. And are there different treatments that the hygienist can offer to treat the periodontal disease on different levels to help them become healthier? Absolutely. You know, the goal, once you've diagnosed disease, whether it's on teeth or implants, the goal is to get disease in remission and keep it in remission. You know, there's there's a saying in periodontal disease, there really is no cure. And the, and the reason they say that is because oftentimes with periodontitis, the bone has been altered and the bone does not always recreate itself in the same architecture. Now, it can improve in terms of density and, and sometimes even the height of the bone will improve somewhat. But because there's a, some permanent changes, we don't really talk so much about cures of periodontal disease because it's a multifactorial condition. But I will tell you what I have seen over and over and over. You diagnose disease in the early enough stage and you get a patient on board and you get them compliant with understanding the value of having a healthy mouth and what that means orally and systemically. You can achieve disease remission so that the disease is no longer active and you're just keeping them in remission. So depending upon the patient, some patients you will keep in remission with a preventive treatment because maybe they had gingivitis and you've gotten that under control and it's reversed itself and you keep them in disease remission. For other patients, maybe you have diagnosed them in the the early stage of periodontitis and even though they may have some early bone architectural changes that are permanent, you they, they are able to achieve disease remission and they're able to sustain it. So for those individuals, you would provide periodontal maintenance for them and whatever interval is appropriate. For some, it would be three months. For some, it might be four months. Occasionally, it might even be longer if they are really sustaining disease remission. So depending upon at what point you diagnose and treat the disease, you're going to manage some of your patients with preventive care. Some you're going to manage with ongoing periodontal maintenance care. And another reason, it seems to me, the uneducated advisor seems <laughs> seems that one of the important things about uh, treating periodontal disease is that medically it's been tied to other more serious uh, conditions. Is that correct? Yeah, I just have been doing webinars on that all week long. And <laughs> it's it's really alarming that I'm just going to step all over toes right now. So I'm just giving everybody fair warning. It's alarming to me as a practicing dental hygienist that every dentist in this country isn't trying to build his or her practice on diagnosis and treatment of periodontal disease today. Because <laughs> periodontal disease and the, the pathogens that contribute to the disease, also contribute to cardiovascular disease. They contribute to Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, colon cancer, oral cancer, adverse pregnancy outcomes, tooth loss. Is, is that enough? I mean, wow. why is it we are not just standing on the corner saying to pay patients walking and driving by, you do not have to lose your teeth. I can help you prevent other diseases. Please come see me. We know how to identify and treat this. 
it, it, practices that have figured this out and are really using this to attract new patients will be the practices of the future. Periodontal disease is not going away. Our age of population is aging and growing older. We need to start making this a high priority in dental practices. And, and again, as a patient, what causes periodontal disease? Is it the things we eat? Is it just hereditary? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> it's a lot of <laughs> okay. different things. Probably just about everything you're going to throw out has some role in it. But yes, our diet does contribute to it because our diet helps to feed the wrong or the right kind of bacteria. So if you have a really unhealthy diet, guess what? You're feeding unhealthy bacteria. If you have a really healthy, well-balanced diet, guess what? You're feeding healthy bacteria. So your risk is going to be lower. But what we do know is that it all depends upon the host response. And the host response is nothing more than just how does your body fight inflammation? Does it fight it with its armor on and it does a great job fighting it? Or does it have the, you know, puny little drawstring that it's trying to, you know, fight inflammation with an army of inflammation coming at you with a little, it's not a drawstring. What's it called, Robert? I don't know. Bungee cord? <laughs> Fine. A ping pong paddle. Okay, whatever. Let's just use something for the analogy there. A ping pong battle. You're trying to fight it with a ping pong battle. You, you, your immune system is either going to be susceptible or it's going to be resistant to periodontal disease. So we know that you can't have periodontal disease without the wrong kind of bacteria. You can feed the wrong kind of bacteria and make it grow exponentially. And then there's all those other lifestyle factors that influence your own immune response that certainly make a big difference in the progression and development of periodontal disease. So it's a bacterial disease, but it is require it requires a vulnerable host to progress. Some people are not real vulnerable to periodontal disease. The vast majority of us are, however. Well, <laughs> the seems, vast majority of us are. You know, and it seems to me that it's it's easy to get a foothold because it just doesn't cause pain. And so as a patient, you just, if you're not in pain, a lot of times Correct. people don't go to the dentist. If you don't go to Correct. the dentist, you can't be discovered that you have periodontal disease. So it's kind of a, a, a sneaky situation, I guess you'd say. It is. I, you know, it's a silent disease for the most part, kind of like high blood pressure. A lot of people end up having high blood pressure and are completely unaware of it because it doesn't have any bells and whistles that are going off in terms of symptoms. And periodontal disease is much the same way. Right. Hey, Ash, do you have any uh, questions you want to ask Karen? Yeah, just a couple. I mean, honestly, she talked about a lot of things. I was actually on the other side of the podcast is listening to what she had to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, but um, speaking uh, about our episode, managing your hygiene department, I actually had a couple of other management type questions. Okay. Um, so number one, this is a question I get from my clients and it's about how to find a good hygienist. Like what, where should I look mm. to find a good hygienist? I mean, sometimes there are online sources, but are there any other places they should be looking? To hire a good one, correct? Well, right. And especially mm. these days, because I've heard from many of our clients during the pandemic that hygienists are in short supply, shorter supply than normal. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. You know, I would always check in with my dental hygiene association that's in the vicinity, in the area where you're practicing. A lot of times they will know of different hygienists that are seeking employment 
Sometimes they know of other practices that are also looking for hygienists. So it can kind of be a networking area. And then I would also check with the employment services that utilize dental hygienists part-time because they will have a really good feel of how, here's what happens. If you're running an employment service and you have a really top-notch hygienist that is working temporarily in a practice, if he or she is a really great clinician, those practices are going to ask for that person back again and again and again when they need some help. So ask your employment services locally that hire temporary hygienists, who are the people that you think are really shining stars that I might want to begin to interview and see if I could possibly persuade them to come join my practice? (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. The other question that I also get is, and this might sound a little silly, but it's just the number of times I've gotten this question. I, I, it just prompts me to ask you this. Okay. Which is, um, if, if I have a lot of drama going on between my hygienist and my other team members, what can I do as a business owner to minimize it? <laughs> <laughs> okay see you later <laughs> yeah you know karen you did say a while ago you were going to step on a lot of toes go ahead and crush them <laughs> oh my gosh all right well because i've been around since methuselah i've been in dentistry a long time i've seen a lot and i'm just going to tell you the number one role of the dentist is to be the leader you got to be the leader And sometimes that means that you got to pull somebody aside and say, I love you, Karen, but what's going on behind the scenes is tearing us apart as a family. And we're all feeling it. We're feeling the stress. The patients are feeling it. So here's what needs to happen. You're going to have to have an attitude adjustment and come leave whatever problems that you have at the front door, at the back door, whatever door you come into the practice, leave them at the door, come in, make a concerted effort to be a team member and walk out the door and then pick up whatever issues you need to resolve on your own, or else we're going to have to just go our different ways. I mean, it needs to almost be that much of a, what do you call those that come to Jesus meeting? Because you need to nip (laughs) that in the butt. You really have to be the leader as the practice owner because what happens, it becomes a cancer. Mm -hmm. It literally becomes a cancer. And I have seen, certain doctors be willing to keep team members on way too long and they end up sabotaging, not intentionally perhaps, but by the nature of the disharmony and the discord that is happening, they sabotage the growth of the practice. It can be a practice killer, actually. So the the doctor, the, the buck stops there. The doctor has to own that. So the doctor has to be a good leader, has to be assertive when he needs to be. Yep. Things that I don't really see happening a lot with the, with a lot of our clients, honestly. They <laughs> no, I understand that. Yeah. I, I understand how foreign that is. I'm just going to, I can be blunt, right? Can I be blunt? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I stopped doing an office training is because I got really discouraged with the poor leadership in dentistry. And I wanted to be there to teach methods and to teach innovation. And I had to go back and teach leadership. And I, that's just, that was not what I wanted to do. (laughs) And yet so many dentists are very ill-equipped to be good leaders. So I think the best advice I could give any of your clients is seek out 
leadership structure and courses and make it a priority. Your practice will soar or it will fail on your leadership ability. <laughs> well, well, and, and that was one of our podcast topics that we covered, um, I think, yeah. a couple of weeks ago is leadership. So yeah. that's well, a good you, one. You cannot yeah. emphasize that enough, honestly. Yeah. Right. I agree. Super. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us and our listeners. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. Yeah, Karen, Theron, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it's you It's worth being what here. you paid me for it. How about that, Robert? <laughs> no, it's worth, it's it's worth, worth far more than that. pay for it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I really appreciate it. It sounds like you all have such a great thing going for dentistry. Thank you for just trying to keep everyone on the cutting edge. And thank you for letting me share a little bit of my own passion. I you, appreciate it. You bet. Thanks very much. Thank all you. Right. All right. You bet. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And if you listeners are have questions and are interested in getting in touch with us, you can reach us at info at eandassociates.com. And that's and spelled out with an A and D. And again, we look forward to having you guys listen to us in our next episode. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to Beyond Bite Wings on your favorite podcast platform. For more info, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or reach out to us on our website. You can also shoot us an email at info at eandassociates.com.